<clears throat> okay, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. Uh, I'm your host, Jonathan Sadler. And uh, so we've got Scott Smelser with us today. How are you, Scott? I'm doing good. Okay, good to see you. Uh, Justin Dobbs, how are you, Justin? Doing well, thank God. And Dan Bunting, how are you doing, Dan? I'm very well, thank you. Okay, good to see all of you guys today. Um, so, Scott, what are we going to be talking about today? Well, uh, as um, I, I feel really embarrassed to answer that because as we were getting on the program, I asked guys, what was it we said we were going to talk about last week? And they told me it's Mark chapter two. So now that I've asked, what are we going to talk about? Is it we should have told you something else. <laughs> it's Mark chapter two. Uh, it, we're going to be monthly um, going through uh, the text of Mark once a month while we deal with other questions and stuff. And so while you're watching, uh, if you have a question that you'd like to ask, and it's not on Mark 2, that's okay, we can interrupt that. Or if you've got a question you'd like us to do next week, uh, please let us know. But for today, we'll be looking at Mark 2. And so how about one of you gentlemen start us into the text and let's get into it. Let's read verses uh, 1 through 12 if we like. Uh, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they'd made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went up before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Yeah, I really like... Um this story there's just a lot to get from this story so this this comes right on the heels of chapter one where you see in chapter one kind of an introduction to jesus about all the things that make him i guess different or special or or different things like that um and so there are examples of him having authority over uh the demons uh, and being able to cast those out uh, examples of him having authority over sickness and illness and he can heal peter's mother-in-law he heals the leper at the end of chapter one um his teaching has authority that's one of the things that they notice uh, about jesus that he when he speaks it carries authority and weight with it and chapter two begins i think with another one of those stories about what kind of authority that jesus has and so the primary uh thing that's happening here that jesus is trying to show is that he has the authority to forgive sins um and, and we could talk about kind of the details of this story, and there are other things to get out of it, but keeping with that theme of what authority Jesus has, I think it's really interesting and fascinating how Jesus kind of introduces that idea that he has the authority to forgive sins. Um, 
So you've got these these guys that bring his their friend. Uh, one of their friends is paralyzed. Um, and four men are carrying him. They bring him to where Jesus is. They can't get in easily to where Jesus is. And so they lower him down through the roof. And the very first thing that Jesus says to the man whenever he's lowered in front of him is, your sins are forgiven. Um, so like, well, what's the response to that? And why do they have that response? Well, the response that we get is not from the main characters in the story, which is kind of curious, but instead we get a response from the, the surrounding watchers who are frustrated with the blasphemy that Jesus would dare to claim the, the authority like you're talking about uh, to, to forgive sin. Yeah, so the, the onlookers are, are like, you can't do that. Um, only God can forgive sins. Um, and I like Jesus's response. You learn you learn a lot about Jesus in the story. Um, first, when the when the people respond in that way, um, are they vocal about their feelings or? How's that? Mm -hmm. No, he can hear them in their hearts. He, yeah, he, he speaks that to them. In fact, that why are you saying this in your hearts? Yeah, that'd be a little strange. Uh, I think if you know you think something about a person and then they kind of just turn and look at you and you're like. Why are you thinking that about me? <laughs> and say specifically what you were thinking. You're like, um, <laughs> like, how did you know that? Uh, and so Jesus uh, then goes on from there um, and, and says, like, I'll, I'll prove to you that I can forgive this man's sins, that I have the authority to forgive sins. And he does that in a really interesting way. He asks them a question, which is a popular tactic that Jesus has throughout the Gospels uh, whenever he meets opposition, just responding with questions. So his question is, um, What's easier to do, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? Um, now, why did Jesus ask that question? What, what's the answer to that question? What's he trying to point out? To them? One is, <clears throat> one is actually harder to do, uh, but, but there's no evidence of it. You know, if, if I say to you, your sins are forgiven, I'm claiming to do something only God can do. I mean, they're right. Only God can forgive sins. Um, but you can't see whether you have sins with you or not. You can't see if they're forgiven or not. And so it's kind of this untestable claim. But if a lame man shows up and someone says, well, I'll, I'll heal him. And they say, zap, you're healed. And then nothing happens. <laughs> he doesn't get up and walk then, I mean, well, give it a few hours, you know, like it, it's obvious this man is not who he's claiming to be. And so Jesus does what is relatively easier, making a lame man walk, still impossible for us. And it, it leads you in the direction of trusting that this man can do everything he claims to do, which leads to the next question. If only God can forgive sins and this man just proved to us that he can do the unseen, who is this guy? Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a very powerful statement without Jesus actually making a direct claim, by the way, I'm God. Uh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a really powerful statement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so it's clear at that point, Jesus is, is saying like, like listen, I, I know you can't measure how forgiven this guy is visibly, so I'll give you some visible evidence to show you that I have mm -hmm. forgiven him, that I can do that. Scott? Yeah. I think this is a really important principle that people need to understand and we need to help convey to people and that 
faith is to be based on evidence. So Jesus said in John 5, 31, if I bear witness myself, just that, I just make this claim. Then he said, then my witness is not true. He said, but here's the witnesses. And he points to the witness of John the Baptist. He points to the witness of the miracles. And he points to the witness of prophecy. And then, of course, the Gospel of John will end with the big witness of the resurrection. Jesus isn't asking us to believe something without a reason to believe it. But faith itself is what in Hebrews 11? Evidence of things unseen. Yeah. So all of us are believing in something we haven't seen. But we need to have a basis that we can see on which we establish our trust in what we can't see. Mm -hmm. So let's name two or three things that none of us and none of our audience have seen. I've never seen Australia. Okay. Uh, now we might have somebody in our audience that's seen Australia, but I haven't. Um, uh, what's something that nobody on earth has seen? Today? The core of the earth, maybe? Okay. So, I'm sorry. Let me get more. What's some <laughs> things that we believe in that we okay. have not seen? Um, the flood. Okay. Uh, we didn't see the flood. Uh, we haven't seen God. We didn't see Jesus in the flesh. We didn't see the empty tomb. We didn't see the risen Christ. There's a lot of things that we haven't seen. Yet, let's start with God. Uh, Romans 1 says that uh, the Gentiles were without excuse because the invisible attributes of God, things you can't see, his power and divinity could clearly be seen by looking at what? Things that he's made. Yeah. So God doesn't not make a creation and then expect people to believe that he's the author of a creation he didn't make. Uh, so here's something you see that gives us a reason to believe this. We didn't see the empty tomb, but we do see the accounts of people. Uh, we didn't see Jesus risen from the dead, but we see the change in Paul's life. So there's, we didn't see Jesus in the flesh, but we see Isaiah 53. And you can go online and see a copy of Isaiah 53, where the copy is written over 100 years before Jesus was born. You can see that with your own eyes, the Dead Sea Scrolls manuscript, Isaiah 53. Mm -hmm. So what Jesus is doing here, he says something they can't see. And he's, these people are like, oh, who can do that? And the point is, only God can do that. But we can't walk up to a lame man and say, get up and walk and him do it. Mm -hmm. God can't. So I'm going to do something down here that you can see so that you'll have a reason to accept what you can't see. Damn. Um, one of the, on, on a different vein, um, what I like so much about this story is, is in two parts. One, that it comes, it, it says unexpected things or it goes in, di in directions that we don't expect it to. And that it is such a big um, thinking uh, story 
it's a very easy story. It's, it's about as simple as a parable. And most kids that have ever been to a Bible class have this story memorized. It's such an easy story to remember, but it has some, so many big, big thought ideas in it, which Scott is exactly what you were pointing out. It's just Jesus talking to a man, he forgives him and he heals him. But those, uh, the, the way that he uh, proceeds into that, what he says and what he addresses um, gives us a lot of ideas to be thinking about. The events of the story are pretty simple, but there's so many big ideas uh, uh, to think about in it um, where uh, there was a statement earlier, Jesus doesn't come out and say, by the way, I'm the son of God. But this story points us into that um, essential conclusion. He doesn't have to say it, but the simple events of the story make that a, a, a demanding conclusion that we come to. Jonathan? Yeah, and uh, going along those lines, uh, another point that I think is really fascinating to notice is, so you, you come at it from the perspective of trying to learn about Jesus. And I think there's a lot you can learn about Jesus and who he is. But if you try to put yourself into this story, and like specifically if you're the paralyzed guy, I think you learn some lessons as the paralyzed guy. Um, if I'm the paralyzed guy, and and my friends, like we hear that there's this guy in Galilee that is healing people, <laughs> and like anything, he's healing everything. And it's like, I'm paralyzed. And my buddies are like, we need to take you to Jesus so that you can be healed, right? And you get there, and it's like, the, the house is full, and you can't get inside, and it's like, great, now we're not going to do it but I have really good friends and they really go the extra mile and get up on the roof and get me in front of Jesus. And now I'm here and I'm like, great, perfect. I'm, I'm going to be healed. And then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. As the paralyzed guy, I'd be like, okay, great. But that's not why I'm here. <laughs> like, um, and so you, you learn another thing um, as the paralyzed man that being paralyzed or whatever other ailment that you have is not your biggest problem. Um, and I think that Jesus clearly illustrates that in this story. Like he goes on to show mercy and, and heal him. But his biggest issue was that he was living in his sins. And Jesus could solve that issue along with his other smaller issues. But it's weird to think about being paralyzed as a small issue. But it is in comparison to our separation from God and the sin that we have in our life. But Jesus can can answer that. So I think that's cool. Mm -hmm. Just I think just that idea, take, take that in a general way and say our deepest problem is sin our biggest problem is sin but when you really start to apply that to real life scenarios uh, I, mean, I don't know how many times we get in a situation and we cannot change the circumstances mm -hmm. um, I know right now uh, of a, uh, a wife uh, who has a husband who's pretty passive they have several grown sons who are living with them uh, they're really badly behaved. She's trying to learn more about Jesus, follow him. The husband's just kind of hands off, like police are getting called. It's just, it's just bad. And if the husband doesn't get on board, what does she do? Her hope seemingly is in changing her circumstances. But you can't, you can't change those circumstances. Um, her biggest problem though, is not an apathetic husband. It's not unruly children. It's whether or not she has a relationship with the Lord. Mm -hmm. And if you don't have that problem, then no other problem that you have is as great as the joy that you do have in Christ. And if we would learn to see that our, our deepest problem is sin, and then Jesus takes care of that problem, then we'd have a joy that it wouldn't, it wouldn't be that it would be untouched by our trials and difficulties in this life. 
but they would just never amount to overwhelming the joy that we have in Christ. Uh, I just think that's so, so helpful. Whatever challenge we're facing with sickness or relational problems, uh, stress, whatever it may be, um, this one solution just, uh, it silences all the other problems that we might have. Mm -hmm. That's exactly where Paul goes in Romans chapter eight. Um, the, I consider the sufferings of this present age not worth comparing to the eternal glory that will be revealed to us. Mm -hmm. if, if Jesus had not healed this man, if he just said your sins are forgiven and he had not healed him, he would have had everything he needed. Um, but Jesus goes more because he's looking to teach us more. And he wants us to see who he is. Uh, but yeah, our, our deepest needs are our spiritual needs. And so this I do like the, go ahead, Dan, I'm sorry. I was going to say, with the, this little discussion is, is like case in point to the power of this tiny little children's story. Uh, that that it's, not a, it's not a children's story. It's just that it's so simple that, that children can memorize it. Maybe it's simple enough that adults can learn from it. Uh, the, the, the unexpected statement, um, your sins are forgiven. It's like, no, Jesus, that's not what he's here for. It, it's that surprising moment um, uh, that, that gives us so much to think about. When uh, the statement, the way Mark describes it, Jesus doesn't see the man's faith. He sees their faith. So many of the other stories, it's the faith of the individual. Here, it's the faith of the group. And that's a curious thing to think about. What does it mean uh, to, to have a connected and shared faith in a group? Um, the fact that the people that question Jesus are questioning him over, quite honestly, a, a, a godly issue. No one can forgive sins but God alone is a good and right statement. And so Jesus still condemns that because maybe their hearts were too hard to accept what they should by the sights that they saw and the words that they had heard. And so there are so many different ways that, that um, even 12 verses uh, that we have memorized in a story of Jesus uh, can affect um, the massive uh, interactions we have with others. You're talking about this family situation, Justin, that sounds so complicated and hard. And not to sound trite, but the simple story of Jesus healing the paralytic is where we need to go when we have those huge, um, uh, the, the, the insurmountable issues that are out there. Sometimes the simple stories can give us a view that our insurmountable issues are not as large as we sometimes think they are. Well, um, well, let's move on. We've got uh, a few more stories in chapter two. Um, so I'll, I'll read this next story um, in verse 13, Mark 2. He went out again beside the sea, and all of the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were so and there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, "Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners?" And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, "Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Again. Small little story, probably a lot we could say about this. What, what do you guys want to point out? One thing I'd like to point out is two extremes. There are some people 
who kind of like the Pharisees try to be separate from the world and they won't associate with people. And, you know, if we all become monks and hide in a monastery, that's not being a light to the world. That's not being the salt of the earth. If you just keep it in the salt shaker, we need to be interacting with people. And some of those people are going to be in various messes and uh, we shouldn't be looking for, um, oh, there's a good potential convert because he's honest and he's nice and he helps people. He's got a wife and three kids and he's got a job and he's not a jerk and he's not doing anything wrong. He won't have to change much of anything. Now, anybody becoming Christian has to change from uh, doing what they think is good to self-denial and following Christ. And that person may not want to make some small adjustment, kind of like the rich young ruler, just lacking one thing. Um, But on the other hand, we've got people who sometimes, they're not just doing what Jesus did, but they're living the lifestyle of the wicked because that's how they think they're gonna reach the wicked. Uh, There was a case in Wichita, Kansas, I believe it was, had a friend that was living there and he was telling me about a church there that was meeting in a strip club. And they had made arrangements with the strip club manager uh, and they were required to at least buy sandwiches, you know, so the strip club is making services and the dancers would keep their clothes on while the church service was going on. But the idea, I guess, was, you know, we need to be where people are. You don't need to be in the strip club to talk to the people that go to the strip club. You don't need to be a customer of a prostitute to teach a prostitute. Uh, and, And so we need to watch what we do with this text. Jesus isn't hanging out with sinners engaging in their sin with them. He's sitting and eating and with talking with sinners who are wanting to hear Justin. On, on that, <clears throat> um, in, in chapter one, we saw Jesus calling some of the disciples already. And here he calls uh, Alphaeus uh, or Levi, rather, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Um, this is likely Matthew, right? Uh, Mark is using a different name. Uh, verse 15, many of the people Jesus was with that evening were also tax collectors. I take it then that these probably would have been Levi's uh, colleagues, you know, his, his uh, fellow tax collectors. So he's kind of like the four friends in the first part, the first story we just read, where they're taking their friend to go see Jesus. And here um, Levi is having Jesus come into his house and inviting everybody he knows to come in to see Jesus. So this would be like the guy who's in the world and he used to go to the strip club, he used to go to the bar and he's not necessarily trying to take Christians to go with him to the strip club and the bar now. He's saying, hey, I've got a buddy of mine who taught me the gospel and I want you to come out of that (laughs) and come hear the gospel. And so he's throwing this conversion party, if you will, and he's inviting everybody he knows, which we're not surprised, we're worldly people. Uh, So... It, it just it puts me in mind of the people that I know 
that, that maybe nobody else knows. Um, but I know them and they need the gospel. And teaching people the gospel, bringing people to Jesus, whether you're the four people who bring their sick friend or your Levi who can get all the tax collectors together, you know, our listeners, you, you know somebody who needs the gospel. Bring them to Jesus. Yeah. Um, and, and whatever that looks like, they need to know Jesus. They need to come and see him because nobody else is in the position that you're in where you can teach them about the Lord. Uh, Levi was willing to do that. Uh, and Jesus was certainly willing to go with him or, or be there for him so he could teach these people. Another thing that this story does is it turns on its head the our perspective of who is the bad guy or who is wrong. In this story, Jesus is sitting and having dinner with the bad people, uh, at, but he he is expressing a different view about that, not necessarily accepting sin the way you were talking, Scott, but but going out with those who who have sin and speaking to them the truth. But it's the it's uh, I can't remember if it's the Pharisees is that who it's described as. Um, yeah, scribes and the Pharisees, and they come up and they have this problem, and they have this charge that Jesus then addresses. Um, his great statement in verse 17 is, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot like a proverb or it's a, it's a riddle. It's, it's written in such a way that's, again, going to make a person think. Uh, the physician is there for the sick people, and the people who are, are well don't need it. And that makes you wonder about the nature of those who are claiming themselves to be well. So that's a really fun statement to think about. But, but these scribes and Pharisees um, who are complaining and having problems, they're not speaking with Jesus. They're not asking him the question. They're speaking in that insidious way of, of, of infiltrating the, uh, his disciples and his followers with these questions and these charges. Where uh, And the last story, they're thinking these things in their hearts. Jesus, on the other hand, comes right out and speaks to them in the last story, comes right out and speaks with the tax collectors and sinners and sits with them, and then turns right around and addresses the, the Pharisees and the scribes here again. He, he calls people out on their situation and on their needs. Uh, in the last story, the paralyzed man's problem was that he was paralyzed, and Jesus essentially says, that's not your problem, and um, he's speaking to people with problems and with sin uh, who might not think that they have problems and sins, and so he's, he's turning on its head who the troublemakers are or who the problem people are. It makes us think about that. It makes us realize that if we're going to have anything to do with Jesus, we're going to have to admit that we're sick. Uh, mm -hmm. You don't go to, just to visit the doctor to hang out with him because he's a cool friend of yours. Like you, you go to the doctor to, to get healing. So the Pharisees and scribes are thinking they don't need Jesus. And I think there are too many of us that think Jesus is a pretty cool guy and like a lot of his teaching. Particularly, I don't need him. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're sick. We need his healing. And it's really easy for me as a teacher that can stand every Sunday behind the magical wooden lectern that all of a sudden makes me an authority figure to think that I am no, no longer sick and, and get right into that same problem that the Pharisees and the scribes had. That authority uh, of teaching can inflate my mind and uh, give me the perspective that I am well, I am the doctor, and you all need me. And that's a very dangerous uh, uh, temptation for me, I think, for all, all people. And, and I think this story wakes that problem up. Uh, it makes me think about how much I need 
um, Jesus and his help. Yeah, in fact, um, so we're, we're still patients. It doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't make people well, like uh, cancer. The good news if you have cancer is if your cancer goes into remission. remission. Yeah. And, you know, on Pentecost, the people received the remission of their sins is the way some translations translate it. But then we still need Jesus going forward. First John 2, walk in the light. But if we act like we don't need the blood of Jesus anymore, that we never, you know, we, we become liars. Uh, but a, a good doctor, you know, his patients aren't falling over dead all the time. He's <laughs> helping them get better, but they're still the patients. He's still the doctor. So I, I like that, that point about not getting confused about who's who. I've, I've struggled with this point a little bit, but I think there's there's something to it. Uh, I wonder if it's uh, quite a biblical uh, idea, but it gets me thinking. Um, some have, have said that the the church is not, uh, or the church is a hospital for sinners. It's not a rest home for saints. Um, and I think that's that's true. That's right. That we need to be. Uh, welcoming people in who have all these kinds of problems, you know, oh, you're on your third marriage and, you know, three of the kids that you bring with you on Sunday, uh, none of them are wearing church clothes, um, but, you know, two of them aren't even yours. And, you know, just, I don't know if we can help you or not. That's, no, we, we, we help those people. Um, yeah. But at the same time, um, at some point, we've got to join the hospital staff. If we're going to stick yeah. with that kind of illustration, we, we don't just remain needy people benefiting, uh, you know, uh, passively from what Christ uses the church to do in helping sinners repent and come to him. We, we join the staff. We, we join the team of, of helping others to heal. I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because I've heard that statement a lot, and there's a lot of truth in it, but it gets taken in a direction that is not true. I've seen church, some churches advertise, you know, come as you are, you know, we're all a mess. You know, we're, we're a community of, of the, you know, some of us are believers, some of us are unbelievers, you know, we're, uh, we're all sinners, et cetera, et cetera. A hospital is not a place where you just get a bunch of sick, diseased people to hang around and stay, you know, coughing on each other. It's a leper colony. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a leper colony. The point of going to the hospital is to get better. Mm -hmm. Now, you don't tell the guy coming in, you know, on the gurney with his leg half hanging off and in, in, in a stab wound in his back. Mm, you might get <laughs> you might get some blood on the table. This is a place for healthy people. No, he is not healthy. That's why he needs to come in here. But mm -hmm. neither. Do you leave him there bleeding out and ignoring the problem? And so, yeah, we need to come to Christ for help. But we, and, and I, this also touches on sometimes how we use the word sinner. Like, uh, we all sin. But when you read the language of 1 John, talking about those that do sin, sin is not what we should do uh and i'll just real quick uh i'll give an illustration a point on that but over justin you've got your hand up 
and then I want to give give an illustration about that. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. The illustration is it's the difference between pets and pests. Now, some of you guys probably have a pet in the house. Jonathan, you've got a dog named Toast. Yes. You know, uh, do you want him there? Uh, sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and you do some things to keep him there. Feed him. You know, you scratch his ears. You know, you, yep. you chose to bring him in. He's mm -hmm. a pet. Yes. Uh, do any of us want flies in our house or mosquitoes in our house? No. No. And so what do we do when we see one? Get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. Now, if I tell you I never, ever get a fly in my house, there's never an insect in my house. Well, I'm a liar. You know, now we do, we use screens, we use different things, fly swatters, but it's how we react to them. Sin should be the pest that is the intruder. We don't want it there. It's not our intention for it to be there. When we let it in, we need to do what? Respond yeah. to it that it is an unwelcome intruder. We yeah. still need the blood of Christ. If any man says he has no sin, he's a liar. But then in chapter three, those who do sin, or chapter one, those who walk in sin, they don't have Christ. And too many times we can let the sin become a pet instead of a pest. We make provision for it. We scratch it behind the ear. We want it there. And we complain and we say, well, yeah, I'm a mess too, but Jesus loves me. Yeah, but I'm not getting, I'm not letting him help me get rid of the pest. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of taking a, uh, another step or two. Uh, and this is, Dan, you mentioned something before about, uh, you know, our, our worship and maybe this is tangent, tangential to our conversation. We have to be so careful that we don't think that it's the lady who comes in and her life is a wreck and it's the wreck that's the sin. That's the consequence of the sin. Uh, and so here's somebody who's got their life all together and I come in and I've got a button up shirt and it's tucked in and uh, my car's all paid off. And so my life is together. And so I'm not sick. I don't have sin in my life. Yeah. I've got some bad habits here and there. And, you know, we all better anger, you know, get away with us, you know, time to time. Uh, but that's just, you know, it's an emotional thing. And we never connect it back to calling it what it is. It's sin. Uh, we've got to be so careful that we're not training ourselves to behave well and still tolerate sin in our hearts. If Jesus says that the lame man has a problem that nobody else can see, but I can heal it, Jesus says, or here are these tax collectors, and they are the scum of society. They've come to me for healing, and they're the Pharisees, and they look really good, but they've not come to me for healing at all. I think we've got to be really careful uh, about the way we're trying to appear to people, the way we are, want the churches we're part of to appear. Uh, we just want well-behaved people when God wants transformed people. Yeah. And so we be very thoughtful about how serious we are about dealing with the sickness. Um, maybe it's tangential, but I think it, it's worth talking about. And we've all sinned more than enough to be a, a problem to those around us and to God. <laughs> 
commits sin so that you'll appreciate grace, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. But the fact is, sometimes it's the people, the, the prodigal son at the end of that chapter has a much better attitude than the son that stayed at home and was selfish. That's right. That's uh, right. Sinful woman who came in crying appreciated Jesus a lot more than the pharisaical self-righteous uh, Simon the Pharisee sitting there. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, I remember one time uh, in a church planting where one fella, you know, has his own business, lived in a nice subdivision, had the wife, the kids, you know, everything together. The other fella had been a bouncer, a strip joint, and a thief and a drug dealer and everything. Um, the first guy ended up not serving the Lord and was marked by the church. The second guy set up most all of my Bible studies there. Now, sometimes, uh, you know, the person wouldn't show up and, you know, he'd get a call. Oh, they got arrested for driving a stolen vehicle. <laughs> That's why, they didn't make it. you know, it was, a, it was a variety. He's going to be late. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But he was getting those studies. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that that's one of the things that's really uh, drawn out uh, by the Pharisees' behavior, um, the, the questioning in their hearts rather than the open, honest discussion, the, uh, the, the questioning and the bickering with the disciples rather than the, the clear, uh, the, the question isn't sincere for learning information, but rather uh, the question is asked in order to create uh, trouble and to create um, uh, problems in their trust and understanding of Jesus. Uh, th that, that sort of behavior that we see in them is, is uh, from this upstanding uh, group of people uh, betrays the, 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 the button-down, tucked-in shirt behavior that they're trying to portray. All right, anything else on that before we hit uh, this last section in the last few minutes? All right, somebody read this last section. 18 through 28. Uh, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, uh, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going to the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, and the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did? And he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is, is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We may not have time to get 
through 23 through 28. That's kind of a complicated story, but I think thematically it connects with uh, 18 through 22. Really interesting illustrations. I think, Dan, you mentioned like a, a, a mini parable. Jesus throws in several little mini parables here. And mm -hmm. the question with uh, Jesus not fasting, his disciples not fasting, because the Pharisees know it's the right holy thing to do. And John's disciples did, uh, but Jesus' disciples not fasting. Uh, what, what do you guys think here is the, the reason for them not fasting? Jesus gives the explanation. Well, his first little mini parable is describing a wedding, a wedding feast. And uh, he says, you know, you, you're not sad when the wedding's going on while, while the bridegroom is there. Um, and Jesus' point is, I'm the bridegroom. I'm, I'm here. My disciples don't have a reason to fast. Now they will later on have a reason to, to mourn and fast. Uh, after Jesus leaves, but right now is not the time. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 John's teaching pointed that direction. Um, he, he was glad to see in John three, uh, I must decrease, he must increase, and so he was excited. And so if if John's disciples caught on to John's teaching the way they should have, that all of this teaching about repentance would have led them to Jesus, and they would have rejoiced that their their answer. Uh, you know, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, there he is. So all of their sorrow for sin and their repentance is uh, answered in Jesus. Uh, these last two little mini parables, um, I've heard all sorts of explanations about this. I'll mm -hmm. offer uh, one idea and then see what you guys, uh, you may throw my ideas down and trample on them, that's fine. Um, I think what he's getting at here is an illustration of what the gospel should do to us. Um, that we may look at our lives like uh, a garment and say, you know, I've got some rough patches here and there in my life. And Jesus's teaching seems to, I like some of what he's saying here. Let me, let me take a piece or two of that and kind of patch it onto my life. Uh, I need a little more Jesus in my life. And so we patch up the holes of our life with the teaching of the gospel that we think fits that area. But when we do that, it's like taking a new unshrunk piece of cloth and putting it on old. And when it does shrink with it, it just makes a bigger hole. Um, Jesus's teaching is not stuff that we can just take bits and pieces of. It's this whole new garment. Uh, it's not meant to just be patching up our life with. And then with, like with the wine, um, the gospel is like, like new wine. And if we remain this old wineskin that is hard that is unable to stretch and move with what the, the gospel does to us, then it's just going to tear us apart. The, the truth is that the gospel isn't just something that refreshes us from the inside out. It actually changes us and we have to be yielding to it. If we don't move with the gospel, then the gospel will actually tear us apart. Uh, it's not just learning a few new behaviors, a few new habits. Ephesians 4, 22 through 24 is really helpful here, where Paul tells people to put off the old man, which is corrupt through deceitful desires, uh, to put on the new man, which is made in the likeness of the Father and true righteousness and holiness. But in between those two, in verse 23, he says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And I think that's what he's getting at here, Jesus here in Mark 2, is that we need to be made new. It's not just a little bit of Jesus, a little bit of the gospel here. Jesus doesn't want to just fix the problems we think we have. He wants to fix problems we don't even know we have. He, he wants to transform our lives from the inside out. That, that's kind of my thinking on that. Do you guys have anything else you might want to say about that? 
I'll just throw in th this idea of new. Um, the Judaizers didn't like the idea of new. You know, they grew up resting on the Sabbath, not eating pork. Your child's going to be circumcised. And they weren't comfortable with then when God brings in the Gentiles and they don't have to do those things. And we can get focused on our comfort zone uh, sometimes and not have the new growth that we need. Um, Paul talks about becoming a man, putting away childish things. Uh, you know, a, a child, you know, he loves that trike, but sometimes he needs to move to a bike. You know, he loves those training wheels, but sometimes there's not a purpose for it. You know, he loves that pacifier. He loves that diaper. We need to get past that at some point. And the gospel comes in and there's going to be some changes and it's going to be a new covenant. It's not the old covenant. It's kind of like a theme word in Hebrews is better. Uh, and sometimes in particular in that transition time, there were a lot of people who didn't want better because they were more interested in comfortable. And, and self-righteousness of the Pharisees often played into that as well. Uh, just really quick, the, the way I've always looked at the, 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 the question that they have with the fasting and Jesus's response is uh, Jesus is initially, uh, is in my mind, primarily addressing just the inappropriateness. That's maybe an overstatement. But why are your disciples not fasting? Uh, other disciples are fasting. And I think Jesus just keeps going to, back to a central theme of uh, we and they are doing what is appropriate. When the, when, the, when the wedding party is going on, that is not the appropriate time to be doing the fasting. There may come a time uh, where fasting will be appropriate, but that's not appropriate for, for me and for what is going on right now. Not me, Dan, but, but me that, that Jesus was speaking. And then he gives two more uh, examples. You don't sew on the, the, this new patch onto an old cloth because that's the wrong sort of thing. It's not going to work uh, together. If you're gonna put a patch on the cloth, you have to put old material on, otherwise it's gonna have this tearing. If you're gonna have a wine, uh, a new batch of wine, you can't put it in the old skin. It has to be, again, I think going into that discussion of these new things, it needs to be a new wine skin. It has to be that which is appropriate. And uh, again, there's this uh, questioning about what is, who is Jesus? What is he doing? And he is saying that he, that he is introducing um, a, a new description of what is the right and the appropriate way to be, uh, what's going on when Jesus is there. It reminds me, Jonathan, of your Bible class just the other day, where in Zechariah, where they ask, um, should we continue to mourn these certain dates uh, commemorating that when Jerusalem fell and when the temple was destroyed? And the very, very short answer is, you know, that's not appropriate right now. Uh, the Bible has a long answer, but one of the one of the short answers is no. That's not right. That's not what we're about right now. And I it it echoes that idea. Jesus is here. Why would we fast? Uh, why would you uh, do patches in the completely wrong way? Uh, why would you store your wine in a way that will definitely burst? Uh, so you need to do things appropriately, and I think in the new or the the to be new in the right way. Uh, very good. Our time's up today. Uh, next time, next month, when we get back to Mark, if if uh, anybody wants to address some of the 
things there in that uh, last section on Jesus, Lord, the Sabbath, we can do that at that time and then get on further into three. Thanks, everybody, for uh, tuning in, whoever's out there. And thanks, you people, because we get so many more people that watch this on the podcast later. So thanks also to the greater number of people who will be viewing this later for tuning in, sharing it, various things. Jonathan, we'll close this out. Yeah, and so if you have any other questions, uh, anything about Mark chapter 2 or anything of the Gospel Mark or any other questions that you'd like us to discuss on the show, you can submit those to us, BibleQuest.tv, and we'll be happy to get to those in our future shows. But that's all we have for this week, so we will look forward to seeing everyone next week. Lord willing.